This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Welcome to Down the Rabbit Hole, a show that is inspired by just clicking on Wikipedia and seeing what's out there. Today, I... I'm inspired by what's going on with COVID-19 and how we are responding to it. Last week at 8 o'clock on Thursday, everybody stood outside their doors and clapped for the NHS in England and for the Irish Health Service here at home. And it got me thinking about how, despite the COVID-19 being something that is threatening us all and being omnipresent, ever-present there all around us, we are showing some defiance to it. Despite shutting down and going at home and staying at home and just generally being hanging out with our friends and family, more less our friends and more so our family, and educating at home, schools shut down and not going out, we have been defiant. We have found ways to communicate, Zoom, Hangouts, House Party, all of these apps where we can talk to our friends or talk to our loved ones or family no matter where they are in the world, spending more time with our family at home, educating our family ourselves, teachers on their computers, sending out lessons to people no matter where they are. There has been such a response, such a defiance to it, that I, it, it reminded me of this song, Don't Give Up by Peter Gabriel. And those tunes were, just those lyrics were going around in my head and I went, you know what, what other songs are out there? And of course, there are so many songs. I mean, songs and defiance almost go hand in hand. Indeed, our own culture here in Ireland is pretty much about defiance. And that is captured in our songs, our ballads, all the way through history. So if you Google it, and there's some wonderful sites out there, you'll get lists of the top 50 defiant songs, or songs about defiance or protest. And of course, there are some classic ones out there. You have, you know, from Woody Guthrie, to you too. There's lots and lots of them there. But I'm not going to go for the obvious ones. Some of them are obvious when you listen to them, but some of them may not be so obvious. And they've all been inspired by looking up just one tune and then moving from one to another to another. Um, so hence the title Down the Rabbit Hole. First up, we are looking at the tune um, Ohio. And this song is pretty much inspired by events that happened in America back there in the late, uh, or the early 70s, 1970 in fact, May 4th, 1970, Kent State shootings. This was in, this inspired Neil Young when he saw a photograph in Life magazine. Uh, it was a Pulitzer Prize winning photograph of a woman, Marianne Vecchio, kneeling over the body of Jeffrey Miller minutes after he was fatally shot by the Ohio National Guard. Jeffrey Miller and his friends were protesting at the bombing of Cambodia, which had nothing to do with Vietnam. And they were protesting at this and the National Guard shot them. In fact, the 28 National Guards fired 67 rounds over a period of 13 seconds, killing four students, wounding nine others. And one of those was uh, permanently paralyzed. So Neil Young, Pretty much 
moved by this photograph of this woman or this young girl's anguished cries wrote this song and it's a protest song and it's often been seen as a counterculture anthem that Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young performed. An article in The Guardian 2010 describes the song as the greatest protest record and it was the pinnacles of the very 1960 genre whilst also saying the revolution never came. The lyrics according to this magazine, helped to evoke the turbulent mood of horror, outrage and shock in the wake of the shootings, especially the line Four Dead in Ohio, and it's repeated throughout the song. Tin soldiers and Nixon coming first to the Kent State shootings where Ohio National Guardsmen, as I said, shot and killed four students. Crosby once stated that young keeping Nixon's name in the lyrics was the bravest thing I ever heard. The American counterculture took the group as its own after the song, given the four status as leaders and spokesmen. After the single's release, it was banned by some of the radio stations in America because of the challenge to the Nixon administration. Uh, But, of course, alternative radio stations, college radio stations, they play this in cities, they play this tune, this song. And it now receives regular airplay and has been regarded by Rolling Stone as the 395th greatest song of all time. Well... Whether it's the greatest song of all time, no matter where it ranks, it is a cracking tune. It's a cracking song, very powerful song. So let's have a listen. Oh, 
another song, but with a very different sound and message, is The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by Gil Scott Heron. This is another protest song, but obviously coming from a very different perspective. It was a poem written by Gil Scott Heron, and then it was recorded in 1970 on the album Small Talk at 125th and Lennox, in which he just recited the lyrics accompanied by congas and bongo drums. It later became uh, re-recorded with a full band and was put on his as a B-side on his first single, Home is Where the Hatred Is. The song was originally a popular so The song title, uh, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, was originally a popular slogan among the 1960s black power movements in the United States. Its lyrics either mention or allude to several television series advertising slogans and icons of entertainment and news coverage that serve as examples of what the revolution will not be or do. It's a response to the spoken word piece when the revolution comes by the last poets from their debut album which opens with the line when the revolution comes some of us will probably catch it on TV. Gil Scott Heron said no, it won't be on TV, it'll be ignored. When Gid Scott Heron died, Public Enemy, he died in May 2011, Public Enemy's Chuck T hailed him as a manifestation of the modern word. During the attempt to overthrow Egyptian uh, President Hosseini Mubarak, uh, Mubarak, Scott Heron's most famous track, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, was played in Tahrir Square. It's a powerful song. It's a powerful poem, spoken word poem, that has inspired many spoken word poets since and has given people the idea that you can actually speak and have a rhythm and a tune that will get people's attention. Have a listen. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nubs. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on the court from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still lights of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow, because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. 
There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry Arm, women liberationists, and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or the Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. incredible to think that that song is 50 years old it would go on to inspire lots of other artists and you can certainly hear disposable heroes of hypocrisy all over that who come out later 23 years after that and put out their own tune that was clearly influenced by it across the water in in the uk you had lots of bands who were also protesting and i suppose one band that everybody knows is the sex pistols their anarchy in the UK is well known as, uh, well, John Lydon pretty much made it his own in the way that he brought it to the television in very controversial fashion when he swore and was drunk with the group on a programme that caused outrage among all the people in their homes who had suddenly the sex pistols shouting and roaring and swearing in it. John Lydon in 2008 in Mojo magazine said that when he was writing this soon this song said it flowed quite naturally to me these are the long long-term motivations that are there you can't can't ever underestimate the sheer drive and energy poverty will bring you being denied everything and access to everything government schools the lot tell you that you don't count you are scum go flow or else that's an incredible drive and energy to be better than their estimation of you as a publicity stunt, the band performed this song on the River Thames um, on a boat called the Queen Elizabeth on June 7, 1977. Celebrations were underway for the Silver Jubilee and according to the Queen's 25 years of being on the throne. Two days later, she was scheduled to ride on the same river as part of the ceremonies, so the Sex Pistols decided to make a mockery of it. The plan was to perform the song plus obviously God save the Queen, as they were floating by the House of Parliament, but they didn't get close as police intercepted the boat. The record company executives who organised the event were arrested when they docked, but the stunt got them plenty of press and boosted their punk rock bona fide. That came about, oddly enough, just as a giggle, because of not getting gigs, Johnny Rotten explained in the Melody Maker. I had in my mind not even the slightest knowledge of there being a jubilee at all. I was quite stunned by it all. But whatever he might thought about it being a giggle, it certainly was a call and cry for the lower classes, for the working class people who felt largely ignored by the elite. And this song really captured that mood. And that band would go on to inspire many, many other legendary British groups like the Smiths and so on. Let's hear Anarchy in the UK. <laughs> I am an anarchist. Don't know what 
how many of you remember this film High Fidelity which starred John Cusick as a much beleaguered record store owner who had two almost chaotic and imbecile-like record store helps uh, one of them called Dick who just was a complete nerd well in a scene Dick is trying to chat up a girl and he plays a band who were to inspire Green Day Let's hear that little clip. Well, the interesting thing about Green Day is that um, so much of their music is, in truth, directly influenced by, in my opinion, uh, two bands. The, the Clash. clash. Uh, correct, uh, Clash. Uh, but also by this band called the Stiff Little Fingers. Um, I think you would really love this band. Sounds great. My name's Anna. What name? Um, my name's Dick. Is this the new Green Day? At that moment, the two rolled their eyes as if, oh my God, she doesn't know who Stiff Little Fingers are. Well, I didn't know who Stiff Little Fingers were when I saw the film as well, and I thought the song was brilliant. So I dug it out. Here it is. <laughs> Stiff Little Fingers, um, Suspect Device, that was recorded in 1978, and many of you mightn't um, know that song, or you probably do, I didn't, I certainly never came across it before. Um, Stiff Little Fingers were a band that formed in 1977 at the height of the Troubles, and they, much like any of the famous bands in Northern Ireland, they started out as a schoolboy band. And, in fact, they were playing rock covers of Deep Purple songs. In fact, their original title was Highway Star. That was the original name for them. Then they discovered punk and began to play what they knew was best material that was based on what they experienced, which was the Troubles. Hence, the first single was called Suspect Device that you heard there. It was packaged in the form of a cassette with a cover depicting a cassette bomb. Apparently, this... There's a great story in where a record company received this and thinking that it was a real bomb, they threw it into a bucket of water and realised afterwards it was just an ordinary cassette tape. So they rang the band and asked for another copy. A copy of that song was sent to John Peel, the legendary John Peel, and he played it repeatedly, leading to a distribution deal with Rough Trade Records. The single was released on the band's own Rigid Digits label and sold an incredible 30,000 copies. Peel would later go on to do the same with another famous Northern Irish band, The Undertones. And it's interesting that there was a well-known publicised argument between the two bands. The Undertones accused Stiff Little Fingers of sensationalising the troubles, whilst Stiff Little Fingers felt that The Undertones ignored it. 
whatever your feelings about both bands, their songs are both brilliant and they both capture that punk rock era uh, that they were influenced by. Suspect Device that just played there confronts the violence, politics and the impact of the conflict on the band. They group around it and it's, you know, Jake Burns, the lead singer there, is barking out defiant lyrics like a furious dog to a backdrop of trash and buzz saw guitars. Burns takes on the role of spokesman for a generation who grew up impacted by the bombing, shooting barricades and peace lines. The anger and defiance builds throughout the song until by the end Burns has become the suspect device himself. He shouts, I am a suspect device, the army can't defuse. You suspect device, they know they can't refuse. We're going to blow up in their face. It's a great, great, great song, but I think they have a better tune, which is Alternative Ulster. It really, for me, captures their viewpoint in which they felt that the Ulster that they were growing up in wasn't the Ulster that was for young people and that they yearned for an alternative Ulster that represented them and represented their views, the young people of Northern Ireland, not the violence, not the hacks, not the politics, not the politicians who are completely out of touch with them. Listen to this. You can actually hear the spinning of the record as it was played and recorded off a vinyl record. But enjoy it anyway.
wasn't just English punk rockers or Northern Irish punk rockers that were making up points or standing their ground. In America, there was plenty of punk rock going on that really emphasised what was going on in society and hammering home the point that people shouldn't accept it. In California, you had the Dead Kennedys and their brilliant song, California Uber Alice, really captures their feelings about the corrupt politician, uh, Jerry Brown. Well, corrupt in their view anyway. California Uber Alice is their debut single and it would go on later to be copied and re-jigged and revisioned by uh, disposable heroes of hypocrisy. But the Dead Kennedys version really, in June 1979, blazed a trail in terms of what point it was trying to get across using punk rock as a political message. Formed in San Francisco in 1978, uh, they took their cue, of course, from what was going on in England. And the lead singer, Jello Barfra, said that it was when he got his hands on an import copy of Anarchy in the UK, that set him on his path. The lyrics in California Barales are pointed satirical attack on Jerry Brown, who was the governor of California and who was looking to be nominated to run for president. And in their version of their perspective of him, they see him as a hippie fascist and outlining his view of what a hippie fascist America would look like. When California Uberalis was written, it was a swipe at the left-wing organic politics, all too familiar to San Francisco punks, embodied in the state's crunchy governor. He was a kind of, a, bizarrely enough, we often associate uh, corrupt politicians or politicians who were wrong as being right-wing. Here, this was a left-wing politician, a hippie-type politician, and under their view, they were saying that left-wingism is just as dangerous as right-wing politics. And this view of the hippie culture, they were saying it's totally, totally wrong for society. And that was the view until, of course, Ronald Reagan came in, and his views really showed what how dangerous a right-wing politics looked like and how maybe... Someone like Jerry Brown is okay. Whatever your feelings are about the politics of it, which are very much out of date in my views now it is, uh, the song isn't. It's brilliant. You're 
and bass that's running through that um, Jello Biafras that's his signature bass playing there and really really gets the whole groove going on it um, of course as I mentioned there this, that song was covered by uh, the disposable heroes of hypocrisy uh, in their 1992 album hypocrisy is the greatest luxury they replaced references to Jerry Brown with references to another guy who was running for president Pete Wilson the irony, I suppose, is that uh, Jello Baffer was involved in producing the work of uh, Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy and probably were a massive influence on them, clearly, because they recorded a cover version of it. Um, Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy uh, were formed in 1990 by Michael Franti. Um, you might know him from Spearhead as well. And that album, Hypocrisy is the Greatest Luxury, is a brilliantly politically charged work that has not dated lyrically too well. Much of what they have to say was relevant to when things were going on then, but you can still listen to it, and it's great. And, you know, what they do with um, California Uberales is just fantastic. And I never even heard of uh, the Dead Kennedys until a friend of mine, Garrett Hamilton, who used to go around wearing a long trench coat with the Dead Kennedys scribbled on it. And I was like, what's that about? And when he showed me and gave me a tape of him, I was just blown away by it. And that you can tell, you know, if you were just a young 15 year old lad and you were given that tape back in the late 80s, early 90s, and you heard it, you would go, yeah, that is something else. It's not like anything I've heard. Next, I suppose, since I'm doing this and it's my little show, I can play California Uber Alice. So let's hear how their version compares with the original. California. 
Governor Pete Wilson, you know The baddest governor to ever grab a mic and go BOOM! Give me a punch and watch me hack it Give me a beat and I'll show you how to jack it I give the rich a giant tax loophole I leave the poor living in a poop hole At a time when AIDS is in a crisis I cut healthcare and I raise prices Sales tax, snack tax, excise tax Information attack with a newspaper tax It's the pocketbooks of working families Increased tuition at the university Someday I'll come land all of you Even your kids are gonna pray to me in school Soon I'm gonna be the president You might remember the last one this state sent California, Uber Alice California, Uber Alice California, Uber Alice California, Uber Alice I'm so proud to know the great communicator Wanna be known as a great incarcerator I'll blow environmentalists away And I'll be the Fuhrer someday I keep cutting public education Even though we rank 45th in the nation I got a plan for the minorities I send them to the California Youth Authority From San Francisco Urban Elementary To Pelican Bay State Penitentiary There they can work for the master race And always wear a happy face Close your eyes, it can't happen here Big brother and his squad cars coming near Come and join the surf and sun And keep California number one California, Uber Alice California,
So, which one is your favourite? Which version? I think for me, probably the original by Dead Kennedys. It's just probably much superior tune than that. Very different versions of it, of course. But you can't beat the original. Now, in the 1980s, there was loads and loads and loads of protest tunes. I mean, I could have picked loads. I could have picked any. Uh, Born USA, Bruce Springsteen, Two Tribes, Good War, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, The Message by Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five, Enola Gay by OMD, 99, Luft Balloons, 99 Balloons. There's loads and loads of great tunes. But there's one that I didn't even realise when I was growing up in the 80s and listened to it. I had no idea that it was a song of protest. It was only when I started to look up this and go down the rabbit hole as you want that I realised discovered that it's actually a very powerful uh, message and even though the song itself may sound a little bit cheesy or dated it's still a very powerful powerful message about um, the situation that was going on in Australia Uh, of course what I'm talking about is Beds of Burning by Midnight Oil um, released in 1987 it was one of their I suppose it was the biggest tune that they had and probably the biggest rock group that Australia ever had seen in the 1980s. And it's actually ironic that in the 26th of January, after releasing it late 1987, the 26th of January 1988, with the 200th anniversary of the fleet's first arrival in Sydney, that they would be celebrating the bicentennial year by singing a song that was really highlighting that the country had been founded on pillage and genocide. The song itself is a political protest about giving native Australian lands back to the Aboriginal Australians. Um, again, when you're dancing around singing to it as a child, you don't realise that that's what it was about. Um, what it was really about was how the Aboriginal tribes in the 1950s were having their land taken off them um, because of some idea that it could be useful for military missile testing the land wasn't purchased by them they were just taken or stolen off them and they were forced to move relocate to places where it's typical in all governments they relocate the people from their land to areas of bad conditions where one-sixth in the case of the aboriginal tribes died of uh, from treatable disease and suffering did not end there. The forcible government didn't just remove people from their land or the Aborigines from their land. They also took thousands of Aboriginal children from their parents and that became they became known as the Stolen Generation. In 2000, in the Special Olympics, and not the Special Olympics, my apologies, the Sydney Olympics, uh, Midland Isle performed the song at the closing of that Olympics to a world audience of billions of people, including the Prime Minister John Howard. The entire band were dressed in black and they had the word sorry printed on their clothing because the Prime Minister himself refused to apologise on behalf of Australia. So it took some real guts. They had their message out to billions of people that they were saying sorry. Even if the Prime Minister wasn't saying sorry, they were going to say sorry to the Aboriginal Australians about how they were treated for the last 200 years. It's a great, great tune cheesy in parts but the message is very powerful
Give it back.
a haunting ending to the tune that you wouldn't expect. It's brilliant when you hear the lyrics. They're very powerful and really get across the message about how we can be living in a society and that we owe our share back to a group of people that originally owned the lands. Moving from there to America, 1989, Do the Right Thing. Just watched it there uh, two nights ago. It's brilliant. Spike Lee's film about racial tensions in um, New York. Do the Right Thing, of course, Public Enemy's favourite and often cited as one of the most important rap songs ever. But it was actually conceived by Spike Lee, who approached uh, Chuck D and Public Enemy about writing a tune that would be almost an anthem for their uh, for his film. And it was a smash hit, obviously. It was well, it wasn't actually smashed at the time. It didn't perform as well as they had hoped. It's just been recognised later on by critics as saying it's one of the most important rap tunes to emerge out of the late 80s. It was first issued on the film soundtrack in 1989 and, of course, a different version featured on Public Enemy's 1990 studio album Fear of a Black Planet. Fight the Power incorporates uh, various samples and allusions to African-American culture, including civil rights, exhortations, black church services and the music of James Brown. And whilst it celebrates that side of African-American culture, it takes a swipe at the complacency of African-Americans, the type of don't worry, be happy tunes that were out there saying that we should fight the power, we should be taking on the authority who don't recognize us as equals in society and it takes many swipes at complacent african-americans and it also takes swipes at white totems such as elvis presley and john wayne it takes them firmly in its sights it's really powerful and really captures the mood and sentiment that was not only exemplified in the film but also i suppose in a way captured the way people still feel today it's amazing that a film that came out in 1989 and a message in it really still goes on today um in the film uh, radio rahim at the end um, gets strangled by the police and a riot occurs in it and it that, that you know over you know the real heavy-handed approach by the police that was depicted in that film I mean, we're all very familiar with that today and how it's still happening in America and the feelings of the African-Americans being largely ignored and the protest songs of 1989. You know, where did it go? Who's listened to it today? And it's quite frustrating probably for people like Public Enemy who really felt that this was a calling card to find that the same thing is still going on today. But whatever the political message is about it and how the way the things are today still doesn't stop us all from listening to what Chuck D and the crew had to say. Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight.
Okay, talk to me about the future of Public Enemy. Future of Public Enemy got a... Don't know what the future is. 
But no more than the 1980s. The 1990s was awash as well with political songs. But one group that really epitomise the whole political movement and the urgency and the drive and the real sense of seriousness, for me anyway, is Rage Against the Machine. And their album, Rage Against the Machine, their debut album, is incredible and it's awash with politically motivated songs and I suppose every single one of us remember Killing in the Name of but there are many other tracks on that album that are just as powerful in what they have to say about political corruption about anti-war move, you know the anti-war lack of anti-war movement that was there I suppose and the song that I really love is Know Your Enemy and it's one of many of the album, which contains, as I said, anti-war and anti-authoritarian lyrics. And I suppose depressingly, no more than 1989 and how society hasn't changed when we reflect back today and what the message that Chuck T or what even what the film Do the Right Thing was saying. This album, 1992, and its message is really depressingly sad to think that today America is no different. The song's main message in Know Your Enemy is that American government is contradictory when it touts itself as the land of the free, yet it's run by an elitist enterprise, and that you should question authority figures who determine what you are to believe. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like Donald Trump? Yeah. 1992 track, and we're still talking about that today. The message is evident in lines such as what landed a free whoever told you that is your enemy as we move into 92 still in a room without a view. And yes, I know my enemies. They're the teachers that taught me to fight me. The song ends with the following lines. Compromise, conformity, assimilation, submission, ignorance, hypocrisy, brutality, the elite, all of which are American dreams. The elite, Donald Trump and his cohort, who go around preaching that they are representing the lower class in society, in the rust bucket society world of uh, America, that they are one of them when they're clearly not and look down upon them. This song in 1992 should be played today. It should become a rallying call for all of those, especially coming up to the election.
to think 1992 for many they still don't have a room with a view today moving on from there um in the 90s we all know the 90s really especially for the grunge scene but amongst those within the grunge scene there was another scene that was uh, growing traction and that was the riot girl movement that was founded by a group of like-minded bands and magazine makers who had published work that was encouraging to start a conversation about reclaiming girlhood that had been spoiled by misogyny. One group was Bikini Kill, and they tackled the rape culture, female solidarity, and the pursuit of pleasure. And you can hear that pretty much in Kathleen Hanna's confrontational sing-song vocals that were often backed by a brace of lo-fi playing. At gigs, they famously brought girls to the front to provide a sanctuary for their, from the aggression of, of male-dominated punk shows. And when you think of punk and when you think of the groups that have played that have been male dominated, groups like Bikini Kill, um, they were just pretty much there to reclaim music for pretty much everybody, not just a male dominated punk scene. And they were celebrated by peers such as Kurt Cobain. In fact, um, Hannah wrote on the wall of Kurt's bedroom, Kurt smells like teen spirit and you know where that led to. So they were 
Unfortunately, groups like them were often abused at shows with men turn up specifically to cause trouble. They were mocked by the male-dominated music press and pretty much they had to fight a fight even though you had groups like Pearl Jam and Nirvana who were feted and celebrated. Groups like Bikini Kill had to fight their corner to be heard. The song that I'm going to play today is Rebel Girl and the theme and lyrics overturned the traditional heterosexual tropes of pop music. Given a voice to the unconcealed lesbian perspective, it is a frank and explicit tribute to and love song for another woman. In a larger sense, it's viewed as an ode to feminist solidarity. It is considered to be Bikini Kill's signature tune and its equally endearing, uh, enduring affiliation is with the feminist movement known as the Riot Girl. From their start, Bikini Kill were inextricably linked to Riot Girl, and more than any other song, Rebel Girl was the movement's most widely recognised musical expression. And it is a definitive anthem song. If you want to hear it, just listen on. that Spike Lee was trying to raise those issues or even rage against the machine uh, Bikini Kills Rebel Girl there in the 90s really didn't change anything 
In fact, they said that they were frustrated that women were still fighting for what riot girls wanted in the 90s. They said that the same issues still exist. Reflecting today, they said that being a woman in public is very intense, whether it's in the public eye or just walking down the street at a night by yourself. And that's true when you think um, that Bikini Kill's once underground brand of feminism thankfully has gone mainstream. The Me Too movement, however, echoes the conversations that Riot Girl opened up. But, you know, that's 1992 and today in 2020 and 2019 when the Me Too movement was at its fore, it's taken that long for the conversation to be opened up. Another brilliant um, group, The Gossip, talking about the rights um, of uh, being a feminist or the rights of women or even, you know, the LGBT movement. Um, Their song, um, Standing in the Way of Control, really, really um, brought that to the fore. Um, It's a song that was written by lead singer Beth Ditto in response to the Federal Marriage Amendment, which would have constitutionally outlawed same-sex marriage in the United States. And she said of the song, the lyrics came out in a two-minute splurge. I drew on personal experience like growing up in Bible Belt and being labelled a bitch. She says that she could guess that everyone could relate to the title of Resistant Control. It wasn't just her gay friends who were having dark times. The economy was shit, she says, and the people were struggling. They were called a gay band, a queer band, a riot girl band, but they were just working class kids and people connected with their song. And it really, really stands out when you hear it. it it's a powerful, powerful anthem of standing in way of control, trying to stop those to who manipulate you and to prevent you from leading a life that you want. You are your friend. 
released in 2006 and again in 2007. I think unlike other bands, their message seemed to have seeped through a lot more than what people would have expected because obviously today, thankfully, we have same-sex marriage and it that movement is continuing and continuing with more and more countries bringing it in and recognising the rights of the LGBT uh, community. So that's just me um, with a few songs that I've picked up out of the groups of groups and groups and many, many lists that are out there. All you need to do is Google Defiant Songs and you get the top 50 of this crowd, the top 50, top 500 of this. There are so many out there. There's so many wonderful tunes. And I suppose by introducing a few of these to some of you, if you haven't heard them before or for some of you, it's just uh, an excuse to listen to them again. Great. I started off by talking about Peter Gabriel and Don't Give Up, and I suppose I'll finish off with that song. Um, it was inspired by him looking at a group, a selection of photographs from a Depression era that were taken by Dorothy Lang, and they showed poverty-stricken Americans in the Dust Bowl conditions. Uh, Peter Gabriel saw these images in 1973 uh, in a book called The Proud Land, and he felt that a song could be written that would in a way be appropriate to reflect that those photographs and spare of those photographs in the difficult economic conditions in which England were having under Margaret Thatcher. He composed those lyrics within a situation imagining a man whose unemployment causes stress in his domestic relationship and he, obviously the songs or the verses are sung by Peter Gabriel and describing a man's feelings of isolation, loneliness and despair with the chorus has been sung by Kate Bush often in words of hope and encouragement. When he wrote the song, obviously being inspired by the American Dust Bowl, he wanted to write it from that viewpoint of the American Roots music movement. And he approached country singer Dolly Parton to sing with him. And Dolly Parton turned it down, so his friend Kate Bush took her place and really made it her own with uh, Peter Gabriel, of course. Don't give up in these times of um, COVID-19 and the coronavirus. Don't give up, guys. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, obviously, we will get through this. We will look back at this and see how defined we were in the way that we fought it. So here we are. Peter Gabriel, Don't Give Up, featuring Kate Bush.
never thought that I could be a victim. Thought that we'd be last to go. It is so strange the way things turn. Drove the night toward my home, the place that I was born on the lakeside. As daylight broke, I saw the earth. The trees had burned down to the ground.
give up guys thank you so much for listening it's been a longer show than I thought it would be but it just goes to show you how much great music there is out there that you can sit and spend your while just getting lost in many many tunes until the next day until the next show that we have take care and look after yourselves bye bye